0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Well, good morning. Hope everybody's well. If you have your Bible this morning, you can go ahead and open it to Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And I'll actually go all the way through chapter 7. Um, that'll make a little bit more sense, I think, as we... Um, Continue our journey through this message today. Um, it's, a, it's a speech, the vast majority of it is a speech that Stephen gives, but Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, all the way through um, chapter 7. And so if you're new to covenant, what we do here is we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so this is where we find ourselves this morning, is, in, is at the end of chapter 6 and in the entirety of, of Acts chapter 7. And the, really the whole narrative Uh, The Jerusalem narrative is coming to a climax this morning. I don't have time to give a whole lot of context or history, um, but if you've been with us, then you should be able to track up to this point. If not, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the prior messages, and it'll kind of bring you up to speed on all that's going on here. But in short, in Acts chapter 2, the New Testament church was birthed as the Holy Spirit came down at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And since then, what we've seen are arrests, We've seen two different gag orders where they've been instructed not to speak the name of Jesus publicly. We've seen the apostles and these early Christians beaten. We've seen them imprisoned. But we've also seen, in light of the beating, the imprisonment and the persecution from the outside and the corruption from the inside, we've seen a group of followers, followers of Jesus, remain steadfast. And so at least in these first six chapters, we've seen them show a courage and a boldness that really can only be marked and understood by those that have been filled with the Spirit of God Himself. Well, this morning, um, you might have noticed in the prayer, I I, I do want to give a little bit of a disclaimer. This is heavy. All right, we'll have ice cream tonight and fireworks, but this is heavy, and it's supposed to be. Um, We're going to see a man unlawfully killed for the sole reason of sharing the gospel, all right? But, but, it's not sad in the sense of, like, this is the end of something. The irony and the beauty and the power is that what, from the human vantage point, looks like the end of something actually serves as the catalyst to even get the gospel to us. And so, we're going to see a man killed. We're going to see him unlawfully killed He's going to be killed by stones, which is a horrific death. It's a slow death. It's a terrible death. But as we'll see over the next few weeks, it does nothing but ignite and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you look down with me in chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen, Brandon. Brandon read this earlier, but I want to point out to you a couple of things. First in verse 8, and it says in Stephen, if you remember from last week, Stephen... Was the first deacon mentioned. Okay? So, so there was an administrative problem because the, they were growing so rapidly, and they, and they bring Stephen, and he's one of the seven men that, or six men that come up and serve as deacons. And so Stephen was the first deacon mentioned, and it tells us that he's full of grace and power. And I want to just pause there because this, this power isn't a pseudo power, it's, it's not a fake power, it's not a man made power. Now, everybody that's around him and those that he's about to be preaching to, They do have power, but it's a man-made power. It's a man-made authority, and it's not real power. This power that Stephen has comes from, as we're told multiple times in the text, that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so there's a courage, and there's a strength, and there's a boldness, regardless of what comes his way, that comes from God. But he doesn't just have power. He has grace. And so there's this graciousness that also is parallel with this power. And this word grace is really simple. It, it means kindness. It means to desire to bless. It means to actually be gracious. And so you have a, a man that is this level of power, the most power that any human can hold that's come from God himself, while at the same time, this power is displayed, it's displayed through kindness and grace and mercy. I'm a God with joy. And he wants to share this, this joy. And, and so he has real power and he has real grace. Verse 10 says, but they could not, they, th- these are the, the freedmen, the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, all those mentioned there, that they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. So this, this grace and this power, um, if you want to think of it the way Paul talks of it in Ephesians, of grace and truth, there's an intersect between grace and truth. And that is a beautiful place to be. You don't want to have so much truth that you don't have any grace. You don't want to have so much grace that you don't have any truth. Neither of those are biblical. And so Stephen's full of both here with grace and truth and power and and grace. Now, these that he's speaking to are highly educated philosophers, they've been trained in how to debate, they've been trained in logic, they they understand how to articulate the argument, they understand how to pin the normal person, and Stephen would have been one of those, that they would have thought, hey, I can eat this guy's lunch in a debate. Well, because of this grace and power that Stephen has, they, they can't do anything with him, and verse 10 tells us, but they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And I, I like to think of this as and I don't use this word much, you guys know that, but like this is an anointing. Stephen's demeanor, his oracle skills, the love that he has for the people that he's talking to, and knowing the exact time to share the information have been gifted to him in this moment by God himself. And and if you noticed, his face in verse 15. And gazing at him, by by the way, that, that word just means to stare. To stare, and, and in most most cultures, especially in ours, stare at somebody and see how well that goes. I don't know what it is, but that some people would almost rather just be cussed than stared at. Well, they're staring at him, and here's why: all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Those Sundays when Dolan preaches, the face of an angel. Seriously, I, I don't know for sure what this is about, just to be honest. And I, I did some studying, and I, I, like, there's some different ideas. Two things that I think are worth mentioning. Because of what Stephen is about to say to these Jewish leaders... they're aware of the story of Moses. In fact, their accusations towards Stephen is that he's rejected the Holy Land and he's rejected the Holy Law and he's basically blaspheming God by blaspheming Moses. So they're fully aware of the story found in Exodus when Moses spent time with the Lord and he left that time with the Lord in his face was shining like the glory of God. And so this could be a moment, another mercy moment for them to make a connection that, hey, this guy's face is supernaturally shining that should help them say, hey, he's actually from God. Second thing worth noticing is that he is described to have a face of an angel. Old Testament, New Testament alike, angels are messengers from God. Angels are messengers from God. And so, in another mercy moment, they should see. Hey, this guy's legitimate. He's he's from God. He's speaking on behalf of God. That's not what happens. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Basically, Stephen, have you been blaspheming the temple, the land, and the law? And this is Stephen's response. Now, I'm going to read it in its entirety. It takes six minutes and six seconds. I know that because I read it before. If you get lost in it, you just get lost in it. I'm sorry. But you need to know, there will be one inerrant part of this sermon, and it's going to be this one. My explanation of Scripture is flawed. Scripture is not flawed. So I'm going to read Stephen's response in speech, and then what we'll do after it, we'll break it down into the sections that he breaks it down in, and then we'll see some application for ourselves. And by that time, it should be, we should be ready to shoot fireworks. All right. <laughs> Verse 2. Read along with me. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The promise to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, this is key, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, And great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers." and they carried back to Shechem and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem but as the time of the promise drew near which God had granted to Abraham the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit the brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. "...saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away, and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel?" You took up the tent of Malach and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua, and they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before the fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Verse 51. You stiff-necked people It's important to remember those that Stephen is speaking to. These are Jewish people. Not only Jewish people, these are priests, these are Jewish leaders. So they hear this speech and they're tracking. If you haven't had much background, biblical background, or maybe you're new to church or new to Christianity, or whatever the case may be, you might not be tracking in the way that they are tracking. In fact, I would argue that probably none of us can understand and apply some of the things that he says in the way that those who are hearing this speech for the first time could. So don't get frustrated. Okay? They have spent years learning and memorizing the law. Years learning and understanding more, or so they thought in understanding, these stories that he has referenced. His point, Stephen's point, is to confront their love for and misuse of, there's irony, the law, their love for and misunderstanding of the promised land, and their love for and misuse of the temple. They're breaking the law. They're obsessed with the land that's not meant to be obsessed over. And they believe that the temple is where God is restricted to be. So his speech confronts those very things and he does it with four specific ways. In in four specific ways. The the first way in verses 2 through 8 is he reminds them of Abraham. Now, Uh, Three things in each is what I've jotted down. Actually, um, the last one with the temple has just one thing. But Abraham, Joseph, and Moses are going to have three specific things. The first thing that he reminds them about Abraham is that the Lord appeared to him. And they're going, Duh! Like, I know that. Like, that's a no-brainer. But he wants them to remember, the Lord appeared to our father Abraham. The second thing he highlights is that not only did the Lord appear to him, but the Lord appeared to him in Mesopotamia. Why is that important? Well, because it's not the promised land. Remember, they think God is restricted to the promised land, to the temple, and to this law. So he's reminding them, look, our father met the Lord in Mesopotamia. Third, in fact, even more than that, Abraham such a, had such a grasp on the reality of eternity that even though all these promises were made to him and all this came about through him, he never considered the earth his home. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, speaking of Abraham, it says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder it's God. Secondly, verses 9 through 16, he shifts, Stephen shifts to Joseph. And the emphasis here, first with Joseph, is that Joseph was mistreated because of envy and jealousy. Now, if you've been with us throughout this journey, then you know that this persecution that they've received is not about what's true. It's just not about what's true. Because they can't deny the fact that there has been a beggar that's been healed. They can't deny the fact that Jesus Christ has actually come out of the grave. They can't deny the fact that there are signs and wonders that are happening right before their very eyes. And so this hatred and this persecution and these beatings, this imprisonment, all the stuff we mentioned prior is due to jealousy. And so Stephen does what nowhere else in Scripture does. It draws a a direct connection from the story of Joseph to the story of Jesus. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery essentially because they were jealous. They were envious. The second emphasis around Joseph is that in spite of the way that he was mistreated, in spite of it seeming that jealousy and envy would win the day, God was with him. Even more so, he wants them to see not only the truth of what actually happened and that they were jealous, and nobody there would deny that. They sold him because they were jealous. The Lord was with them. Third the Lord used this rejection and this sin to bring about their own salvation. So the very rejection that the patriarchs, Joseph's brothers, brought about and the sin that was involved, God providentially and sovereignly used to save their own lives. Truth and grace. In fact, I want to read to you from Genesis 45, beginning in verse 4. Listen to this. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. This is after Joseph has, there's a famine in the land. The patriarchs, his brothers, like they're hungry. They need something to eat. If they don't find food, everybody's going to die. And Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph. Now watch this, whom you sold into Egypt. That is exactly what happened. They sold him into Egypt. But watch how God providentially works through the same circumstance. Verse 5, and I'm sorry, verse 6. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Verse 7, listen. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. His brothers sold him, 100% true, while at the same time, in God's providence and sovereignty, God sent him. It's even more explicit in verse 8. So it was not you, as he looks to his brothers, who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. He's drawing an obvious connection. That the claim is, is that this Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who's been sent to save. And they rejected him. Throughout this whole story thus far in the first six chapters of Acts, Peter and the apostles have looked at them and said, You did it. The guilt is on you. You killed the righteous one. You murdered the Messiah. You did it. And so he's drawing this connection between what happened with Joseph and what is currently happening happening with Jesus. So he uses Abraham. He uses Joseph. Thirdly, the larger section of this speech, he uses Moses. And the story of Moses in verses 17 through 43 the first emphasis there is that the Lord miraculously preserved Moses. They, they wouldn't have denied that. He, he's laying the foundation. He's, he's laying the groundwork so that they can see and understand their fallacy and how wrong they are. They are wrong in their understanding. And he's leading them along the way like any good teacher would do. He's, he says, hey, here's what we know is true. And he starts them on a journey. And they should clearly see where they veer. So Moses was miraculously preserved. He grew up in Egypt in a time when babies were being killed because the, the number of the Israelites was too many. Well, Moses is preserved. Secondly, Moses was rejected. So after Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house, he, it's in his heart, as Scripture says, that he wants to identify with his people. So he sees an Israelite being mistreated. So he literally, with his own hands, kills the Egyptian that's mistreating the Israelite. Well, Moses thinks that, well, this is going to cause my people to welcome me. Well, the next day he goes and tries to break up another dispute, and the Israelite says, Oh, well, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And so he leaves. He's gone for 40 years. The irony here is that he finds himself in Midian, which is also not the promised land, which is also where God met with him through the burning bush. But there there was also a, a, a second rejection of Moses, the third point here of his emphasis is that after all that they'd seen from Moses, Moses led them out of Egypt, all of the signs and the wonders through the plagues, everything that Moses did, receiving the law, bringing it to them, Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law from the Lord, and he's gone just too long, too long for their liking. And they're like, hey, Aaron, what do we make of Moses? Like, where is he? Did he bail on us? Did he quit? Is he just enjoying God? Like, like, what's the deal? Moses was left in charge, and what they do is they say, well, we just assume Moses is gone, so we're going to just make our own Yahweh, essentially. And they make a golden calf. And so Moses was rejected what I think is more significantly the second time than the way that he was rejected the first time. And if you want to just really see more on that, verses 39 through 43 make this explicit. And his point here is that Moses was clearly God's man, and you rejected him. Next, in verses 44 through 50... 44 through 50, he brings up the tent of witness, which is also the tabernacle, which would now at this point in in redemptive history in Acts 6 be the temple. And so the the tabernacle, if you remember way back in Exodus, when we went through Exodus, the tabernacle was a portable temple God gave to them in their desert wanderings. It was was intricate in design and detail, and it was representative of the presence and the glory of God that was among them. God was now dwelling in, tabernacling with his people. God was near. Well, at this point in Acts 6, at the time of Stephen's speech, the temple in Jerusalem was the beauty of Jerusalem. It was covered in gold. There's some writings you could read that says it literally glistened. Like you had to turn your face as you entered Jerusalem because of the way that the sun would reflect off of the temple itself. Well, the emphasis here is plain and simple. The Lord could not be confined to a building. So God's house theology, it died in Acts chapter 6. There, there is no building, and I know it's phrases that we use, and I'm not trying to be overly critical, but I do think theologically we have to understand that, like say, this isn't God's house. Right? That was the same error that these religious leaders thought with. God is not restricted to brick and mortar or sheetrock or stones or rafters. Like a roof doesn't keep him in. And so it was a clear refute again to their way of worship. Verses 51 through 53 Stephen gets personal. Um, like any good message or speech or sermon when there's meant to be a response, he, he gives application. He, he gives them things to consider. And, and I don't want you to hear this in the tone that you might hear. You might hear this in the tone of maybe your parents or your grandparents wagging their finger at you. Remember, Stephen is full of power and grace. He's speaking at the intersect of grace and truth. If he didn't love the people that he's talking to, he wouldn't be saying what he's saying. Who cares? Who cares? And then 53, you who received the law as delivered by by angels and did not keep it. 53 is interesting because 53 is Stephen essentially saying to them, I'm the one that understands the temple. I'm the one that understands the law. I'm the one that understands the promised land. You don't. Like this law of Moses that you are supposedly keeping... You're breaking it, and it's been par for the course. In fact, his, his response or, or his application is threefold. First, he says, resisting the Holy Spirit is par for the course. It's, it's what you've always done, and it's what your fathers have always done. Secondly, persecuting and rejecting prophets was par for the course. Third, they're breaking the law of Moses, which was also par for the course. So he used Abraham, he used Joseph... He used Moses and he used the temple to show them throughout history how they have consistently done exactly what they are doing at this moment. Think about it. I mean, it's, at first glance, it's just a simple little review. What Jew wouldn't love a history lesson? What Jew wouldn't love to talk about Abraham and Moses and Joseph in the temple? But what Stephen's letting them know is they've, they've missed it. It's been right there all along. And they've missed it. And so Stephen's speech is just a magnificent display of grace and truth. Um, he, he's not, clearly, he's not trying to find a way out of this predicament. He doesn't shrink back in the face of persecution and death. He essentially tells them that He is the one, as I mentioned, that actually understands their history. And that the purpose of the land and the purpose of the law and the purpose of the temple had been fulfilled. Because the law and the land and the temple have always and are currently pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, in Christ, forgiveness from God peace with God, reconciliation to God, the presence of God all come from and are found in Jesus Christ. To put it in Alabama, to put it in Alabama terms, he's telling them to shut it down. List the temple with Joseph, put a sign out front and sell it and, and, and also priest, Thank you for your work, but it's now finished. You need to get your resumes out there. Because there's no need for the temple. There's no need for the priest. Because in the ministry and work of Jesus Christ, the land and the law and the temple have all been fulfilled and all been replaced. It's not that they're bad. They've served their purpose. And they've all been pointing to and highlighting Jesus Christ. There's no need for a priest because Jesus came as the great high priest. There was no seat in the temple for the priest to sit down. You know why? Because their work was never finished. And Hebrews were told that Jesus, after he completed his work, sat down at the right hand of the Father, signifying that the work, salvation, the sacrifice was done. Jesus not only came as the sacrifice, meaning that every drop of blood that was shed throughout Old Covenant history, was pointing to the moment that Jesus Christ's blood was shed, and that was enough and final and perfect. Not only was he the sacrifice, he was also the priest. Making a way for sinners to have access to the Father. There is no special house for God. There is no holy ground. There's no other remedy for sin. It's all Jesus. And listen to me, friends. It's always been about Jesus. The crowd's response is depressing. Look at verse 54. I don't know about you. It's not what I would be looking for. Okay? Like if, if this is the response you give this morning, not really what I'm looking for. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. I don't really want you to answer this and certainly don't elbow your spouse, but have you ever been growled at by a human? Not only that, verse 58 says, And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. I mentioned this, but stoning is a horrific way to die. It's slow. It's methodical. You can listen to them insult and cheer. As somebody else tries to take aim and throw a rock at you. They stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And and so Saul is the name name mentioned here that approves. This is right. That's what Saul's saying. I I approve. And we're going to see as this continues even into next week... Not, Saul didn't want to stop with Stephen. Saul went to the houses. He goes from house to house. And he's not just killing the men. He's killing the women. He wants the children. He wants this message abolished. In verse 55. And I'm just going to tell you this last part. I didn't feel worthy to read it in the first service. And I don't feel worthy to read it in this one. But Stephen's response, but he, that's Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. I want to pause there because there's some irony. This entire religious system that he's confronting is supposedly built around the glory of God. And they don't see it. But Stephen, as he gazes up, he doesn't look to the temple. And there's so much mercy here, friends. There's so much mercy and grace. Again, like, I feel unworthy to even communicate it. But, but Stephen fixes his gaze where he desires them to fix their gaze. And he looks to heaven, and in heaven he sees the glory of God. And it's not about the temple, and it's not about the law, and it's not about the land. When Stephen looks to heaven and sees the glory of God, he sees, it says, plainly, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So if you want to see the glory of God, you need to know that the glory of God is seen in Jesus. Like That's where God has shown himself to be most glorious is in his Son. But we continue to read verse 56. Let me back up. Did you see that he's standing? Did you notice that? This appears to be a welcome. Contrast it with Saul. Who approves of the murder. And Stephen looks to heaven and the son of man that we've already noted has seated Intentionally seated because the, the work of the temple, the work of the priest is finally done through Jesus Christ. He's, he's seated. But when Stephen looks up, he, he's standing. And, and it seems to be that with the host of heaven watching, and all of redemptive history that would read this inspired text, would see and understand that Jesus himself, in the darkest moment of Stephen's life, welcomes him. But it's not just a warm welcome. He stands as his advocate. He's mine. In verse fifty nine, sorry, fifty six. And he said, This is Stephen. This is the best news ever. Behold, I see the heavens open. That's really good news. Heaven's open. Today, heaven's open. What grace, what grace. And Stephen is saying these things in his final moments here on earth. And you can't convince me that he doesn't love these people that are killing him. But heaven's open, and and the only way to get to heaven, the only way to enter into heaven is through the one who's standing there. And it's Jesus. The heaven's open with the Son of Man standing at the right hand. Jump down to 59. and, And as they were stoning Stephen, now this is the last thing that he says. This is the very last thing Stephen says... On this earth, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and, and boy, did he. But 60, this 60 just wrecks me. Like, I, 60 throws me off. And, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. He doesn't look him in the eyes and say, Go to hell. Kill him, Lord. Strike him down. They deserve it. But Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This isn't like a WWJD moment. I'm sure you noticed that this is the same thing Jesus said from the cross. This is a man who genuinely loves the people he's talking to. Like he's looking into eyes that he knows are souls. And he believes heaven's open. And he believes because of what he's already shared with them throughout redemptive history, how they have always rejected God's man, that God, in his mercy and his grace, uses that rejection, even their own sin, to bring about his own salvation. And even though they've rejected and murdered and killed the righteous one, as he's just told them, the righteous one stands with heaven open, ready to receive the worst of the worst. And Stephen obviously understands what he's been forgiven from. And even in this moment, he has to be thinking, how can I not forgive them after how Christ has forgiven me. And we're going to see the Lord answer his prayer. In Saul. Luke is a masterful writer. He doesn't just randomly mention Saul here. Saul's going to be saved in two chapters. And after he says that he... It says he falls asleep, and, then, and that seals his speech, his life with his blood. And so just a few things to consider. What do we do with this? And, and I want to start with a question. Jot it down if you're a note taker, your answers. Because I think the answers will be obvious for most of us. But here's the question. Is there anything that you must have to worship the Lord? Is there anything that you must have to worship the Lord? And after you write down Jesus and truth, stop writing. Because those are in another category. The key word is must have. Because there are things. Clothes. I can't worship Without clothes, certain types of clothes, definitely not without clothes. That's not what I'm saying. Music, building, brothers and sisters, adding anything to Christ totally diminishes Christ. And I'm not just talking to anybody that's traditional or ultra contemporary. Legalism abounds in both. This isn't about one form over another form, this isn't about one mode over another mode. Look, but they're secondary. There are things that are secondary, but there are things that are secondary similar to what they've done here and what Stephen is confronting that they have made primary and they're not primary. They're just not. If you're like me, you read stories like this and you go, I'm Stephen. I'm Stephen. That's who I am. I'm the victim. I'm the one that's being persecuted. Are you? Or do you think it maybe is at least equally helpful to see yourself as the one holding the rocks? Second. Th- this is meant to encourage our faith when persecution comes, not if, but when persecution comes. I, I-, I don't think any of us were ever, will ever be killed for the sake of the gospel. Like, I, I don't anticipate that. It could, it could happen, but I don't think that it's going to be the norm for any of us. But what Luke wants us to have is a is the proper theology of suffering, meaning this. Here's how we apply this. Even though we don't pray, Lord, I would love to be killed for the sake of the gospel. That's ridiculous. That's not what it's saying. But it also isn't saying that, Oh, Lord, because I'm a Christian, that means everything is supposed to be nice and happy, and I should just structure my whole life to be ice cream and fireworks. That, that's not realistic either. It means that you and I, as we walk out this building, we understand that God has placed us in a home, in a neighborhood, in a city, at a workplace, in a school, wherever it is, and we are to have this kind of courage and boldness for the sake of the gospel and understand that our purpose there is first and foremost... To be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Whatever comes from that, comes from that. That's how we apply it. We don't specifically just go try to get killed for the sake of the gospel. We share the gospel and whatever happens, happens. Third, we must be committed to grace and truth. We all have seen and have stories of too much grace. Yes, it's possible. We all have seen and heard stories of too much truth. Yes, it's possible. They go together. They're meant to be together. The intersect of grace and truth, like that's where Christ is. Fourth, the gospel is unstoppable. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a Christian this morning, you can trace your conversion. If you just kept doing, I don't know if, what are those ancestry things called? Like if that was a deal. For salvation, every single one of us would go right back to this moment. Because we're about to see the gospel explode. And listen, it's coming our way. You can trace your conversion in this gathering this morning all the way back to the death of the first martyr. The first person to die for the sake of the gospel was the first deacon. And it was Stephen. And this death that we would think would kill the deal does the exact opposite. Serves as a catalyst for the gospel reaching the ends of the earth. I came across this quote in 3rd century. fellow named Jerome. It sounds like he lives down the street, <laughs> but he's from the 3rd century. Christianity has spread by the shedding of its own blood not the blood of others. Christianity has spread by enduring, not inflicting. Persecutions have made it grow. And martyrs have crowned it. The gospel will not be stopped. And the greatest evidence you and I have of that is the fact that it's made it to our own hearts. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.